Hello, everyone, and welcome to this ODI event on gendering the green city in an era of climate breakdown. I'm Joseph Fiertog, a research fellow in our climate sustainability team at ODI. I'm really excited by today's fantastic panel of speakers, and we are delighted to host this event in for CSW 66. Uh, before I introduce our speakers, uh, just a bit of housekeeping. We'd really like to encourage plenty of exchange between our wonderful audience and invited speakers. So please think now about what you might like to ask our guests and use the Q&A function chat box below this live stream to send in your questions and I'll come to them later in the session. Now let me introduce our guests and having worked on women's land rights and climate across Africa and Southeast Asia for many years, I can testify that this is an exceptional panel and I look forward to a rich discussion. We are extremely fortunate to have Honorable Elizabeth Saki, the mayor of Accra and former member of Ghana's parliament joining us. Elizabeth is a close friend of ours uh, through her role in the Africa Europe Mayor's Dialogue, which is convened by ODI. We will also hear from Dr. Chantney Singh, a senior research consultant with the Indian Institute for Human Settlements and most recently coordinating lead author of the Asia chapter of the IPCC Working Group 2's report, which was just published last month. So she's been extremely busy recently, and we're extremely thankful that she's made the time to attend the session. Uh, you'll have all seen the headlines and the latest climate science. Finally, we are lucky. So I'm just getting a bit of background. But finally, we are lucky to be welcoming Sarah Nandudu, who's joining us from Jinjia and Uganda. Sarah is the vice chairperson of the National Slum Dweller Federation of Uganda and deputy chair of the board of Shack and Slum Dwellers International. Uh, we are very proud to work with SDI under the auspices of the African Cities Research Consortium, which ODI is a partner of. Before we start, I just wanted to cover some of the three basic concepts that underpin the title of this webinar uh, and which will help frame the conversation on gendering the green city in an era of climate breakdown. Uh, the first is the idea of a green city. Uh, so green cities are also referred to as climate smart, sustainable, low carbon or zero carbon cities. Fundamentally, a green city is measured by environmental indicators such as emissions per person or the amount and quality of green space. But importantly, green cities can be places where people are healthier and more productive and where low carbon measures are used to make them more compact, connected and clean. Well-connected and electrified mass transit systems would offer convenient and comfortable commutes, reducing the need to drive. The few vehicles on the streets could be electric, quiet and pollution free allowing for cleaner air and making asthma, allergies and other respiratory diseases far less common. Neighbourhoods could be planned to encourage safe walking and cycling, enabling local retailers and eateries to thrive from steady foot traffic. And homes and commercial buildings could be constructed to allow for increased natural lighting, good ventilation and material design choices that limit the need for temperature control. Combined with rooftop solar panels and highly efficient heating and cooling systems, compact, connected, and clean cities would sharply reduce costs for households and businesses. Greening cities therefore offer opportunities to eradicate poverty and to improve living standards for all urban residents. But realizing this opportunity will depend on participatory processes and equitable outcomes to ensure that no one is left behind. And that is a critical challenge 
we will consider today. That brings me to my second definition uh, of what it means to gender a green city. Now, there are obviously several frameworks that can be used to analyze gender equality. We could just look at it simply in terms of men's and women's access and control over resources. And that's just not material resources such as housing or land, but human and social resources as well, such as education, family and friends. Even where access and control over resources is gender equal, decision-making power over what to use those resources for is often constrained. And that's especially the case for women. To ensure that women are able to access all opportunities that green that green city offers, they need to have agency. And women and other marginalized groups should be free from traditional responsibilities around the division of labor within the household in order to access formal employment and education opportunities. Women also need to feel safe walking from home or taking public transport and encouraged to enter green growth sectors such as transportation or construction that traditionally uh, fall under the purview of men. Um, I assume that we'll be hearing a lot more about the critical issue of tackling discriminatory norms and attitudes in our discussions today. And finally, we need to think about these two concepts, gendering and greening uh, cities, within the context of an increasingly hostile environment caused by the effects of climate change. Global warming is threatening cities through an increase in extreme weather events, such as flooding, storms and heat waves, as well as long-term stresses, such as food and water scarcity or rising sea levels. And women and other marginalized groups are more, often more vulnerable to these effects due to their lack of resources, for instance, by living on land that is prone to flooding or landslides. And it is vital to support those most vulnerable in building resilience to climate change and gendering green cities offers an opportunity to do so while also tackling and mitigating the causes of, of climate change. Um, I, I also would really appreciate from a personal perspective to move away from you know, looking at women as vulnerable actors to those that can actually act as agents in, in tackling climate change in, in parts of today's discussion. Now, I'm sure that you're all very keen to hear from the panelists rather than me. So let me stop there and open the panel to our first question. It is my great pleasure to welcome an ODI friend, uh, Mayor of Accra, uh, Mayor Saki, to this panel today. We'd very much like to start this conversation by coming to you first to ask you if you could share with us your vision for integrating gender into Accra's Greening City initiatives. Mayor Saki, over to you. I think you're on mute, sorry. Oh, okay, thank you. Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone. And I'm very happy to be here today. In fact, being a woman and being the city leader at the front, front the forefront of the climate action agenda, I am a representative of women at the decision-making level, and that makes it my mission to ensure that gender is incorporated into the Accra Greening Agenda. Therefore, I intend to ensure that more women, and I mean more women, have access to green job opportunities 
that all the green Accra project will have women represented there, that women are included in stakeholder engagements on climate action, particularly on the greening agenda. This is, an, this is to empower them and build their capacity on greening and the city, greening the city of Accra. Thank you, Maosaki. And what are some examples of how this can be done and uh, what are the main blockages to implementing this agenda? Thank you so much. I think in uh, the first of it is in, the, in our waste management efforts, we intend or I intend to encourage and train more women as informal waste workers. The Akron Metropolitan Assembly is packaging a program to promote the separation of um, uh, waste at the household level, whereby families divide waste into biodegradable and non-biodegradables. The waste collectors will go from house to house and then to collect it and then sell what can be sold. What cannot be reused will be sent for recycling, which will in turn create more job opportunities. This will have both economic and environmental benefit as well. Thank you. We very will... Thank you very okay. much, Saki. Can I continue? Or, uh, that's enough for you. No, no, no. Please continue. Sorry, sorry to interrupt. Oh, okay, okay. I will work with uh, relevant stakeholders to con conduct skill needs analysis to establish skill requirements by men and women to equally participate and benefit from opportunities created in the green job sectors. The information will be used to create targeted green skills development and training initiative for men and women. And so I, I say men and women because uh, uh, the men also are important as well in such uh, projects, but my focus will also be on the women. Then I also think that um, I want to work, or uh, intend to work with the Ministry of em Employment and Labor and the Children and Gender Ministry to ensure employment and skill development poli poli policies that are developed for green job sector and gender responsive and support by all relevant stakeholders. I also intend to include more women in the tree planting exercises rolled out. We've started with a street uh, planting of uh, trees 
and we are calling it tree planting exercise. And uh, since we have started and it has been rolled out, uh, it will also help in um, ongoing the, uh, that is uh, not only to enhance the environment, but will also affect lives and positively promote clean air among others. So that's another area that I intend to do. I also believe strongly that uh, if uh, we can do this, we will ensure access to funds from all stakeholders. Examples are the government, uh, education institutions, project donors, private investors, and prioritize uh, programs that train women for non traditional positions, which will enable them to make a transition into more dominated occupations in the green economy. And then investing in women and girls will not only enhance gender equality, access gender equality, but then there will also be access to green and decent jobs but will also promote cleaner and more equitable development. And uh, I strongly also believe in uh, engaging women at all levels of employment and drive the green of our, greening of our city agenda. When I'm talking of women, I'm looking at the women architects, women, uh, waste collectors, gardeners, and then even the market women, production companies as such, and workers among others will be engaged in their contributions as well as their buy-in sort. So this and many other things I have intended to do. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Mayor Saki, for those uh, really insightful examples. And I like the way that you also talk about men and women. It's about gender equality, and we all know that in some settings it, it can go the other way, although more commonly women are, are the ones that are disadvantaged. Um, but thank you very much for sharing your vision with us. Um, I would like to turn to uh, Dr. Chandni Singh next, uh, who is lead researcher on these issues. Uh, and is really well placed to tell us what the evidence shows in terms of gender transformative approaches to greening the city. So Chandni, thanks for being here today. I'd like to start by diving straight in and asking you, how can the green city agenda be an opportunity for gender transformative policy and planning approaches to urban problems in our current era of climate breakdown? Thank you so much, uh, Joseph. And uh, it's really an honor to go after Mayor Saki. So, and just listen to such a such a phenomenal uh, female leader. So, thank you so much. Um, all right, coming straight to your question, I guess um, we do know that uh, climate action and urban sustainability initiatives are increasing quite a bit all across the world and at least especially in the global south where i am based in india we see a lot of uh, action around climate adaptation and urban sustainability 
And um, we also know, I mean, there's so much conversation about some of these uh, interventions really uh, providing opportunities to address underlying vulnerabilities in cities, uh, whether these vulnerabilities are because of uh, certain uh, people being in certain livelihoods or belonging to certain age groups, or of course, belonging to certain genders. However, what we've uh, seen often is that there's less emphasis on what happens from these solutions after they take place and are they really increasing or redistributing vulnerability rather than addressing it. Um, and this, at least in the recent IPCC report, we call this, uh, this uh, these negative consequences or unintended negative consequences of uh, certain solutions, we call them maladaptation. Um, so just to give you a flavor of some of what, what these look like and then what are the implications really for uh, you know women living in cities, we had recently done um, an assessment, a global assessment of climate change adaptation interventions in cities and try to understand whether these actions are helping or hindering gender equality. And the way we did this is we looked at the targets and the indicators that we have on SDG 5, which is the SDG on gender equality. And um, unfortunately, the first thing we found is that there's very little out there on this topic. So while we do have a lot of work on gendered vulnerability in cities, there's not as much looking at how adaptation actions and sustainability uh, solutions are really uh, leading to gendered outcomes. You know, So we, we focus on the problem, but not so much on the outcomes of the solutions we are implementing. So when we do measure success of an adaptation strategy, uh, like our monitoring and evaluation systems just aren't there around whether we are alleviating or addressing some of these gendered vulnerabilities. So I think that's that's one of the key takeaways of that work where we uh, found that urban adaptation projects and studies really tend to focus um, inordinately on women's differential vulnerability to climate risks, but very less evidence on actually the fact that there are gendered outcomes of these uh, adaptation actions. Um, the second thing that we did find in this work was that there are, of course, several adaptation actions that uh, improve women's uh, agency. One of the examples I can give is around urban agriculture, so farming in cities which can uh, have benefits for livability, for subjective well-being, so that's quality of life, and then also things like incomes and nutrition. And often women are the ones who are doing these kinds of things. So there are positive outcomes of these. However, um, we also find several case studies across the world really to show that there can also be negative interactions on different SDG targets of SDG 5. So things like uh, women's unpaid work going up, their leisure time uh, reducing because of having to now also farm once they are in the city. So I think it's important to understand that while we have these well-intended um, measures that on the face of it, they, they can have, uh, they are supposed to have positive outcomes, they can have mixed outcomes within a household. Uh, another example that we found uh, has a lot of evidence is around early warning systems to reduce um, you know, uh, climate impacts. And uh, often these are done through public messaging, either through SMSs on your mobile phones or radio messaging. And these also just because of gendered norms around who owns a phone and who owns a radio, they tend to go to the men in the household rather than the women. So there are these 
mixed um, outcomes really of some of the strategies we choose to employ. So what we really end with, I mean, in that work, what we said is that um, we, uh, the way forward is, first of all, of course, having mechanisms to monitor these over the long term, just outcomes of interventions we put into place, and also being really careful about this risk of replicating and reinforcing gender inequalities, which then lead to unequal outcomes when we are putting in some of these solutions, even when it's nature-based solutions, which are often considered uh, more equitable and um, which tend to sometimes have uh, women in the center, they can also lead to inequities. Yeah. Brilliant, Chandni. That's, that's really interesting. I mean, I, 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 did a, I, I didn't read all sort of 3,000 pages of the report, but I did do a search of, of gender and climate change, and I sort of came across some of the some of the issues that you mentioned. So that's a that's a really nice summary of the of the of the, the evidence reviewed in the report. Um, are there any sort of key lessons that you would want to highlight on on gender and cities in particular from from the report? Yeah. So I the way we uh, I mean the way as as you said. <laughs> It's 3,600 and a little more pages. So as expected, it's difficult to go through all of that evidence and really take out for a reader. I feel it's difficult. And one of the places I would like to point listeners to is this cross-chapter box on gender, which is there in chapter 18. It's right at the end of the report where we synthesize all the evidence on gender, whether in cities or in uh, rural areas and different landscapes, really, to uh, yeah, just synthesize the evidence on uh, gender and um, uh, in the whole report. So, of course, while the box that boxes on gender, it also touches upon other social inequities. We use an intersectionality lens to talk about how gender intersects with race, ethnicity, age, income, and a range of other uh, demographic characteristics, of course. And um, what this box, I think, does differently from the earlier IPCC reports is, again, we try to move away from a focus of only thinking of women uh, as vulnerable and really trying to start looking at, as, uh, looking at women as agents of change, exactly as you said in your uh, opening framing uh, uh, bit. So I think that that shift is there. And why that shift is there is not because uh, people don't recognize it, but it's because the IPCC uses existing research and synthesizes it. So there is enough evidence now to show that women actually are leading uh, adaptation action, for example. So there's there's um, enough evidence to show that, and we were able to bring it into the IPCC report this time. Um, what we do say with a lot of confidence is that um, currently we see, especially in urban areas, uh, women are typically underrepresented in decision making, uh, in particular kinds of sectors, especially when it comes to uh, built infrastructure, urban planning, uh, and that's at a city level. But also then if you look at a household or community level, you know, just uh, household decisions around what kind of construction material to use, where to live in the city if you're a migrant. So those kinds of decisions are still not often led by women in, in typical male-headed households. And that means that then women don't have a lot of control over you know, where they live, and that dictates their access to resources, their social networks, and all of that. So there is a gap there, I think. Uh, and again, we assess this through the SDG uh, 5 targets. 
But uh, what I want to highlight is that we end that box again on a possibly positive note where we say that uh, we need to start, if we are to move towards a gender transformative agenda, which is beyond just a gender targeted agenda. So a targeted agenda would have special policies for women. But a transformative agenda, we say, is really this idea of what Mayor Saki so well said, that uh, thinking about men and women as part of the solution and really thinking of that relational aspect of gender. So we say that if you want to move to a gender transformation agenda, you really need to um, think about existing social norms and structures, and power inequality and power structures that are shaping this kind of differential vulnerability and that is really it's it's while we talk of it in the space of climate change adaptation it is a broader societal transition we're talking of a transformation of how we imagine our uh, societies so um and it's really a question of social justice i think while we uh, looked for examples of this kind of gender transformative change when we were we wanted to showcase some concrete examples rather than just having um just a conceptual end to it but we actually struggle to do that and that is where i think is really the next steps of how do we really undertake gender transformative urban planning for example gender transformative uh, urban green infrastructure how do we do that and what we saw in national and subnational uh, climate policies that we assessed i remember examples from ethiopia and india at least that while now there is a lot of push to mainstream gender in our climate policies, uh, that still tends to frame women as vulnerable, women as victims of, uh, of climatic risks. And unfortunately, we've gone the other way where we're focusing so much on women that we've left men out of the conversation, which I think is an equally um, a big, equally a big mistake because we know that to change gender relations and social norms, we have to have both genders, multiple genders, really. So I think in the end, again, uh, this box ends on a note of uh, the need to move away from binaries of either women or men. So we have to collectively think of relational uh, uh, ideas around gender. Uh, of course, we need to adopt an intersectional approach to what we are doing, especially on the solutions we are proposing and then uh, really get better at our, at our monitoring and evaluation systems that track longer term uh, social and normative change rather than uh, just you know replicating current norms that are so unequal um yeah i'll end there thanks brilliant thank thank you so much again i i'm i'm really just fascinated by the stuff that you're saying especially uh, you know, again, I've, I've gone, I've gone through some sections of the IPCC report, and you know, it's there is evidence that you know, trying to, well, we know this from elsewhere, but trying to change norms uh, around gender need to involve men as well as women, and I, I think that's something that's coming uh, across from what you're saying and, and from what Mayor Saki was was saying earlier uh, as well. I think it's also, I mean, just maybe for the audience as well, I think what what you've just said really highlights the sort of reverse sort of causality that's going on between these different uh, uh, STG targets, right? STG 5, gender equality, not just contributes to sort of climate compatible outcomes for climate action, STG 13, 
but climate action can also contribute to gender equality and that's an important distinction to, to make. I guess what we still need to figure out is how these relationships work with respect to SCG 11, sustainable cities, um, and whether there are similar sort of reverse causalities. Is it about a smart city that, that can create gender equality or can gender equality contribute to a, a smart uh, zero carbon city uh, as well and the positive sort of climate outcomes that, that come with that? Um, but let's save that for the discussion. I'd next like to turn to Sarah Nandudu, who will tackle this agenda from the perspective of informal settlements dwellers. Now, just um, just to flag, we've had a couple of technical issues, so I'm not sure whether Sarah's camera is going to work, and there might be a slight delay, so please just bear with us. But Sarah, if you can hear me, can you tell us a bit more about what you would like to see city governments do in terms of supporting women-led organizations or federations of swum dwellers in the face of climate breakdown. It's clear women must be central to the screening process, but how can cities facilitate this? Okay, thank you very much. Um, I've been listening to the first presenters and uh, I think um, I, I, my, my, my conversation on this is just uh, fitting in what they have just said. As the informal dwellers or women in slum population under the umbrella of slum dwellers international, our agenda is looking at inclusiveness. Um, and it's all about how do we ensure that everyone is included in the development of the city. It may not only be the city, but in the development of the entire country. And one important thing that people miss out is that there is enough, enough effort, there is enough experience, there is enough energy, there's a lot of energy that you can find in informal dwellers that can help build their own city. But uh, often, often times, people do not think that there is something valuable that can come out of cities and more so in informal settlements. As under the umbrella of Slum Builders International, our organization brings together people who stay in slums and the agenda behind it is how do we build the strength amongst the people who stay in slums to improve their livelihood, transform their lives, transform their life, livelihood and their living environment. And this alone brings together the discussion of working as a team, as city dwellers, to realize the importance of uh, having a life, a life which is good, accessible to income, good social services. But many instances, you realize that uh, informal dwellers are left out in certain instances where there is development so what we would love to see cities do is to support women initiatives to pick them from where they are to another level. One, women are struggling to fit in government institutions. It's, it's evident that uh, when you talk of informality, people will distance from you. But it's high time that people, I mean governments, realize the strength that people in informal settlements have via their saving groups 
via the mobilization into meaningful uh, um, engagement with different partners and build on that effort that they have to help them transform even where they stay. Uh, because many times we have seen informal dwellers or slum dwellers being evicted. This means you're depriving them the right to be in the city. And this is because they can't access security of tenure. We would love to see cities work together with informal dwellers or slum dwellers in form of accessing land as a key value in development of, of lives as well as cities. So we do feel that cities should have a round table talk with the city dwellers to agree on how they can develop their cities together and see that we have uh, integrated planning, which does not discriminate the poor, does not discriminate the, the people who are marginalized, like disabled, the youth, that an integrated inclusive approach for us to realize the value of social economic transformation, to realize that people can live a meaningful life, even when their 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 beginning was not at a good, um, I would say not, not well stated because many times when you reach in an informal settlement in Islam, people not even want to pass there because of the living conditions there. But if we have integrated planning and we plan together, make sure that we integrate what the poor want and what the rich want, then we shall have an inclusive city where everyone lives. So we also want to see that cities partner with communities. Partnership is very key. Because even when we stay in cities as informal dwellers, we need resources to, in, our, in our informal settlements. We need social services. We need to work together with the cities to say, we need water, we need electricity, we need street lights for protection of our women and children. We need security for the children in the cities and women. We need protection to each and everyone who stay in the city. So without partnership, it will be very difficult because many times, cities look at these people as wrongdoers, look at informal dwellers as wrongdoers. But once we partner together, engage in one another in forums, cause forums, government forums with people, sit together, find out issues, discuss them and create solutions together. This alone will create an impact in having a city which is livable, which is good for all the poor and the rich, and which is a city for everyone. So besides that, we would want to see cities work with informal dwellers in economic factors, because many times we are seeing cities chasing away people from streets. Can we work with the cities? They demarcate areas where these people can put their livelihoods, have their markets, maybe special days, and they're able to have a living, because we all come to cities with a reason. We all come to cities who want to go to schools. We come to cities who want our children to have good education. So. The moment you keep tossing people up and down, the reason you will see cities which are unsafe. So we need to work together to have conducive environment that people have where to get a living for that day, have where to get money to take their children to school, have access to health care, which is good, because that is the reason they come to, to cities. If they are repulsed, that means you are depriving them of the right to a living which is decent. So we also want cities to realize that that livelihood is key factor. And then social economic transformation is the key to making people stay in cities. And then maybe lastly, I would wind up on this is that 
we want to see cities recognize the role of women in all the developments, more so in climate change, adaptations, climate change, resilience, where we have seen women come up even to do things that are helping cities not to realize some of these effects. Because I'll give an example of my own city in Kampala, where women have come up in groups, they clean the settlements, the waste that should have been thrown away is turned into wealth. They are making briquettes out of waste. They are making recycling machines, and now they are recycling waste, which is supposed to be thrown away, which is damaging our drainage channels, which is causing flooding. Women are turning it into wealth. So why not partner with such people to support you? Have a clean city while they, they get uh, some money out of it, and then as well as cleaning their own area where they live. I think it's good that we partner with them and realize the beauty about having group people grouped and the power that they have within them that can help cities moreover to transform in livelihood of the people who stay in those cities. Yeah, for now, I think I can stop there and maybe if there will be any other questions, I'll be able to answer. Thank you very much. Thank you, Sarah. That's that's it's really good to hear such powerful words about um, the importance of of including um, uh, slum dwellers and in, informal uh, women who live in informal settlements into into uh, in, into decision making processes that would help shape uh, a, a smart city. Um, I'd like to actually take this discussion back to our first speaker and ask Mayor Saki if, um, if, if you can speak about any of the participatory processes uh, that, uh, are in, that are available for, for women uh, in Accra. For women in Accra, yes, uh, they, they are mostly traders and then um, buckets as well. But looking at um, the way um, things go, we usually have uh, stakeholders engagement with them. And then with this stakeholders engagement, they will usually tell you some of the successes they've chopped and then also the lapses that's uh, challenges that they do have and um, you could see from their narration that most of the challenges that uh, we do see as to listening to their needs and this helps helps us to plan it helps us to plan when you look at the challenges and that their needs it helps us to plan our policies as to how to handle, how to go about it, and how to generate support for them, and also how to counsel and counsel and advise how to build themselves up boldly and stand in the challenges that come their way. They are, we also try as much as possible to put most of them by training them, training, having training sessions that will build their capacity 
of whatever they're into as to Elvis trading or business, let's assume, for instance, business, how to go about their finances, how to handle their monies, and how to cater for expenditure. And then I think currently, we are looking at getting access to funds for them because um, they're trying to manage and go about their daily work. They also have this huge challenge of how to finance or build up their uh, businesses. And because they are most, most of them are in petty trading, we need to assist them and then um, also train them. They, they surely need access to funding. So we'll, do, we'll have access to fund in the greening jobs. Like we're asking them to collect uh, the waste and also doing other access work, trying to train them. We need to support them by raising funds so that they can also support their homes, their children, the family, and then see how best they can go about their, the greening processes that we are engaging them into. And so we'll usually we'll be trying to um, get them on board to understand, get a deep understanding of what we've given to them to do. We also challenge them to take up greening jobs that may, uh, makes them occupy, it occupies them and then helps them to do more than they are, they, they are being expected to do. So this and so many other things we are trying to push and to put in place that will enhance and encourage and make them focus to the greening jobs that they are doing, they are taking up. Thank you, Mayor Saki. That's, um, it's, it's whatever is, uh, you're doing is clearly working because um, as, as Sarah also mentioned in the beginning, one of the important things is women's political participation. And you are, you're a testament to that as a, as a female mayor of, of one of Africa's most, most uh, important and largest cities. Uh, there is clearly political representation of, of women uh, in, in Ghana, and uh, that's something that we should try and replicate uh, elsewhere. Um, I would also like to ask uh, Chantney about uh, how participatory processes and collectives work in the Indian context and how they can contribute towards uh, greening uh, a city. Chantney. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, I think just listening to uh, Sarah speak earlier uh, about women's collectives and bringing the necessity to bring women into the conversation and really, uh, you know, enable participatory processes that allow women to also come to the table uh, made me reflect on um, India's history of having self-help groups. So bringing women together 
and uh, building capacity. And that's mainly happened in rural areas. But now we see a lot of evidence of that in urban areas as well, where women collectives are uh, formed and then they are, I mean, for a range of activities, whether it is a development intervention, but also then having some sustainability co-benefit. And one of the examples that come to mind is uh, I've been leading a project on urban agriculture in India and Tanzania, where we are really trying to look at how farming in cities can meet both sustainability challenges, uh, food insecurity and nutritional challenges, but also then thinking about uh, growing within the city so that we can reduce emissions from uh, related to food, so food miles, and also thinking about how wet waste goes to landfills and that causes uh, emissions as well. So what we have seen, at least in the city of Pune in West India, is that uh, most of the waste pickers and the waste collectors are women. And uh, several NGOs have been training women to start thinking about wet waste um, composting, using that wet waste then to uh, grow vegetables. So that helps in, uh, you know, household nutritional security, as well as gets you a bit of money. So I think there are these examples of, of how women can be at the forefront of these kinds of solutions. And why it's particularly gendered is, first of all, the act of waste picking in, uh, at least in the city of Pune and wet waste in particular is uh, women are the ones who are doing it mostly. And then also the other side of providing food in a household is also typically a woman's job. So there is that uh, link that's made. I just wanted to also add that uh, while there is a role for formal collectives like these self-help groups that might get a bit of capacity building, a bit of training at the beginning, and maybe even some money to do these things, I feel that there's also a, rec there's a need for us to recognize informal collectives, which is just... Uh, people coming together and uh, doing things that drive them. And uh, perhaps in that case, we need to leave them and let that organic, informal, collective formation also happen. I often wonder that when, if we, I again, from that example of urban agriculture, I've spoken to so many amazing low-income and middle-income women farmers who take tremendous joy from growing their own food and feeding their families and they have these informal peer networks what does it mean to formalize that system they right now they have their own ways of sharing information sharing seeds sharing traditional varieties of seeds and just the act of formalization of that might really change that dynamic so we need to be careful when we think about collectives and creating structures sometimes not having a structure and this more informal kind of knowledge sharing also helps. And it's it's a more inclusive space because the community comes up on its own rather than us going and creating it. So, yeah. Thank you, Chandni. Um, we're slowly starting to get through some questions from the audience, but I'd really like you to, I'd really like to encourage you all to submit any any questions that you have so that we can we can enter that sort of dynamic stage of the discussion. Um, we've got one question here, which really speaks to the energy that we uh, need to, to address uh, uh, the, the issue of gendering green cities, uh, and that and that Sarah mentioned in 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 her uh, in her part. But Sarah, if if I could ask you, what commitments? 
would you or SDI like to see from uh, from the next COP, the COP27 in Sharm el Sheikh, which is uh, the, which is obviously the Africa COP? Um, what commitments would you like to see on on cities or gender going forward? Uh, I, I just feel that uh, commitments should be um, maybe um, cross-cutting. I don't know if that is the right statement, but I'd love to see cities commit. I'd love to see national governments make commitments. I would love to see international uh, world make commitments because in all we speak about issues of climate change, there is resources required. We need knowledge, we need sharing. So in all this, we would love to see cities commit to work with its indigenous people, the people who stay in their cities to work together towards the betterment of their cities, the environment and effects of climate issues. They should move together. There should be no one left behind. And I want to see national governments make uh, pro-people policies as regards to issues of climate change. So I want to see governments commit themselves to work with people, to work with uh, different categories of people, regardless of their, their, their sex, regardless of what, work with women, work with the youth, work with the children, work with disabled people, together we can make it. And I want also to see international world commit to work with communities because many instances we are left out, people are looking at working with governments, but we have this particular component of people who are very resourceful, but they lack support. And you'll only see that some information, some, some resources are, are, are moved down to government and they step, stop at government level. But we have entities like mobilized communities, we have CSOs, we have non-government organizations, that are doing tremendous work, but there is no support. So we want to see people commit to work together with whoever has something to put on table to transform their cities, to, to transform their environment, as well as the cities in general. Those are some of the commitments I would love to see at that conference. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. Um, Mayor Saki, if I could, if I could ask you the same question, if if we were having this same panel at COP twenty seven in half a year's time, what would you be asking people? What would you be asking global leaders to do uh, to help gender uh, uh, cities uh, um, in in Africa and beyond? Sorry, Mayasaki, you might be on mute. Still on mute, I'm afraid. Oh, there we go. That's good. For the past two years, I've shown that now more than ever, we need to find ways of forging global corporations to find someone solutions to global challenges such as uh, 
climate change. And uh, I also think that uh, working in partnership with other cities, there is an opportunity to find common and sustainable solutions. Then I also think that I'm, I'm proud to be part of the African-European Mayors Dialogue, an innovative platform for cities to work together across Africa and Europe to advance and um, to advance cooperation between cities within and between our continents. That's also another one. And then I think uh, cities play a key role in the green transition to address and resolve global challenges together. It is vital that the voices cities be heard at a national and international levels. Then I think also with the last thought, um, it says uh, it's the, uh, through though cooperative or cooperation, though cooperation, we can exchange ideas to better development or to develop test and scale innovative dialogues. So it means we can be creating that dialogues amongst ourselves to at least create innovation solution to tackle common issues faced in building green, resilient and inclusive cities. And I think uh, we've got those words. Uh, I'm, I'm so grateful. I think that that's another main point in joining the mayor's dialogue platform. So when we have come to that level, I'm sure things should work. So it should be more action oriented than commitment, more of action, action. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Mayor Saki. And uh, for anybody who's not aware of the Africa-Europe Mayor's Dialogue, it's a really interesting project and uh, really encourages uh, cities in the Global South and the Global North to act in coalition and share lessons and ideas uh, like the ones that Mayor Saki has, has mentioned. Um, finally, uh, Chandni, if I could just ask you the same question about uh, COP27, what would you like to see uh, in terms of the commitments made on cities or gender uh, at COP27? Yeah, thank you, Joseph. Um, I think one of the things I would definitely like to see, and I think this is going to be the big agenda on this uh, COP, is around loss and damage. And the focus tends to be on material loss and damage, so impacts that we can actually quantify and measure. But from my own work, what we've seen, and also loss and damage from rapid events, so floods and cyclones. But uh, at least in India, we uh, we have a lot of uh, slow onset events like drought and water scarcity, which aren't as visible in our cities. And uh, while, of course, we do have flooding, drought and water scarcity are also significant risks in our cities. And often they are affecting 
low-lying areas, um, waters critically linked to uh, women and the time they spend around uh, collecting water in our cities. So I feel that uh, some of these slow onset events, but also non-material losses and damages, uh, things like increased conflict, having to spend more time, for example, those kinds of things which affect women much more than men, I feel, in our informal settlements in cities. I would like to see some recognition of that, first of all, and then actually a way forward. And uh, one more point, I think we do talk a lot about uh, capacity building flowing from the global north to the global south. But I, uh, I think there needs to be greater conversation about capacity building and knowledge sharing within the global south. I think there's a lot that, for example, African cities can teach Indian cities and vice versa. So I feel that that conversation within the global south where contexts are more similar and experiences of inequality and colonization are more um, real and worse, but uh, seeing that at a global scale really. Uh, at a cop would be would be uh, really nice, and then having money put behind those south to south capacity building rather than uh, always capacity seen to be flowing from the north to the south. Thanks. Great, thank you so much for those final words, uh, Chandni. Um, I think that's that's it for now. We're we're rapidly running out of time, and it's nearly the end of the uh, the, the webinar. I'd like to finish by just thanking you for all your questions on how to gender the green city. Um, I wish we could have had a bit more time to bring everyone who wanted to contribute in, uh, but we'll keep the conversation going online. Uh, for now, I'd like to share a final thank you to our amazing panelists, Maya Saki, Chandni, and Sarah. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to to, to speak at this event uh, we really appreciate it and I, i'm sure the audience does too um this public event will has been recorded and uh, will be available online on www.odi.org in the next couple of days uh, we'll also tweet from at odi uh, underscore global when it's available on youtube and as an odi live event podcast so please do share uh, and keep the conversation going far and wide. And we look forward to seeing you at another ODI event soon. Thank you, everyone. Bye. Thank you. Thank you.